We continue the conversation with Swami Atmarupananda, the head of the Centre d'Antique Ramakrishna near Paris, on the topic How to Transform the World. Let's assume that I have understood that it is good to change. How do I start? That the first thing, usually for most people, is to understand uh, uh, intellectually. That doesn't mean necessarily philosophically, because some people are intellectual in the in the in the academic sense. Uh, other people are not at all academic, uh, but feel things more than they than they think things. But either way, to get an understanding through thinking, uh, the thinking process or for getting a sense through a f- uh, feeling, not superficial sentimentality, but through the de- deeper f- uh, feeling of the truth of things, uh, the truth uh, that uh, we were talking about, of unity and uh, uh, the divinity of all things, the spiritual nature of all things, etc., to get an understanding of that. Because normally our understanding or changing the understanding comes first and uh, uh, for most of us and as that understanding as we get a deeper understanding and as we hold on to that understanding uh, it begins to uh, activate the feelings also that is we begin to feel the truths of which we are uh, convinced once we uh, are convinced something is true Uh, that I haven't yet experienced, but I'm convinced that it's true, then uh, I should try to hold on to that truth and uh, begin to mold my actions and reactions in tune with that truth. That eventually leads to perception. So in order to change such a deep-seated, habitual, instinctive almost thinking and perceiving, Uh, our ideas have to go deep. And so it's not enough just to say, well, I can understand intellectually that uh, there is one reality, if I come to that conviction, if after thinking I come to that conviction, that there is one reality. It's not enough just to have that as sort of a superficial uh, idea that has to go deep so that it becomes uh, the foundation of my other thoughts and my actions and reactions uh, in life. Uh, To do that, I have to go deep into the idea. I have to hold on to it. The ideas at present, which are underpinning the present-day paradigm which rules society, those are ideas which have gone deep into the human human psyche. And again, as I said before, they've become sort of instinctive. They're not even uh, self-examined for most people. So we don't want to be unconscious. We want to be conscious of what it is that I think and what it is that I believe. But I, those ideas have to go deep enough so that they also begin to guide my behavior as the old paradigm guides people's behavior now. Uh, When we do that, we begin to see that our perception itself changes. And for those on the spiritual path, which I think will be those who change the paradigm, that happens through uh, spiritual discipline. That, That is through holding on to an idea that I have come to be convinced of, holding on to it until it begins to guide my actions and reactions through, again, through meditation, through affirmation, through, if one is devotion, more devotional, through prayer, through devotional exercises and so forth, so that, uh, so that it goes deep. As Swami Vivekananda said, take up one idea, meaning a true idea, uh, a higher truth, take up one idea and hold on to it until it uh, begins to uh, enter into the nerves and into the bloodstream. It begins to beat with every heartbeat, that is, Uh, what I was saying, until it becomes a a part of ourselves. So let me back up for a moment and say that uh, in Vedanta, we're not afraid of doubt. We're not afraid of atheism, agnosticism, or or any other uh, way of thinking. And one should not take up any thought, like a Vedantic, including a Vedantic thought, unless one is convinced it's true. So 
the, the idea of oneness, if one doesn't believe in it, then one shouldn't uh, beat one's oneself over the head with the idea to convince oneself. Uh, but if a person examining the truth becomes convinced that this is true, though I don't yet see it, but now I can understand that this must be true, then to t take it up uh, and hold on to it until it becomes the center of our life and that which guides my actions and my reactions. Then inner transformation takes place. Uh, the, what uh, in the classical Christian world, especially in the Eastern part of Christianity, they call metanoia, the uh, transformation of uh, the, uh, what in Western Christianity was often called conversion in the deep spiritual mystical sense, not conversion in the modern missionary sense, but the deep conversion, or in the Eastern Christianity, the metanoia, that's what's uh, necessary, or what in the Buddhist world is called bodhicitta, the Mahayana Buddhist world, uh, where one has become uh, so deeply colored by uh, a truth uh, that it begins to uh, transform the whole orientation of one's being. So that's what we need. And that will automatically change our interaction with others, right? Moreover, if our relationships with people become more positive, more considerate, it will confirm that we are on the right path, which is quite important. Yes, yes, no, that's very true. So we don't uh, we don't live isolated, uh, as uh, I said in the earlier session. Even if we close ourselves in a uh, in a cave, uh, we're still in touch with the whole world through the cosmic mind, because our mind is participating in the cosmic mind in which all minds are connected. Most of us, of course, don't close ourselves up in a cave, so that's uh, that's a hypothetical. <laughs> Most of us are uh, in the communion with other people. And so, yes, our actions and interactions do affect other people. And that we can even experiment with uh, once we have taken up uh, these ideas, become convinced of their truth, and begun to practice them. Something as simple as trying to, as a practice, not as a realization, but as a practice, trying to remember that everyone I interact with is a divine being, is the same reality which I am and which I'm trying to realize, that everyone is a being of light. If I hold on to that and I go into the, uh, the store, uh, and uh, not in an, uh, an emotional, sentimental, or externalized way, but just quietly internally, If I try to remember that as I'm dealing with people in the store, the salesperson or the person at the uh, checkout counter, uh, I begin to see that their reactions with me are different from what they were before. Suddenly, someone who seemed to be very hard and uh, uh, bored with their work, uh, there's a softness that comes to them in reaction to my, uh, my interchange. And so I begin to see, yes, some people are less sensitive and some people may still be rude to us and things that happens, of course. But in general, we'll begin to see that there's a change in our interaction with people. The person, the other person may not know why, but we begin to see that they respond to us in a softer way than they did before. And that's just a little way of beginning to understand how the external world Uh, reflects my uh, my own internal world, uh, that uh, I do have an effect on the world. In fact, in a, in a very real sense, each one of us is a teacher uh, because each one of us is modeling something for the outer world, good or bad or indifferent. <laughs> And uh, so when we change our inner attitudes, we begin to see that the attitudes of others towards us uh, begin to change. In the center of Western culture stands personality, individuality, the idea of I, but not of me as a compassionate belonging, as you have described, but of me a part of others, against others, in competition with others. It is a kind of me-first approach to the world. One of the central values of Vedic culture, well, actually of almost all other cultures, except our Western culture, 
stands humility. Humility has a bad reputation in the West. We associate it with subordination, with losing. Is humility something we should learn? Yes, uh, but as with everything, we first have to understand what humility really means. Because, as you say, you just said, uh, in the West, uh, humility has a bad rap. Uh, it's uh, considered to be subordination, uh, lowering oneself, uh, debasing oneself. Uh, that's not uh, humility. Humility doesn't mean, oh, I'm a terrible person, I'm no good. Uh, that is uh, a, a soft form of egotism. <laughs> Uh, real humility should mean transparency, that I'm not setting myself up against others. It doesn't mean that I'm putting myself below others intentionally. Uh, it just means that uh, I no longer feel this may not sound connected to humility, but it is very much connected to real humility. Uh, I no longer feel threatened by the world. And so I don't have to impose myself on the world. Egotism uh, is actually not a sign of inner strength, it's a sign of inner weakness. Uh, Carl Jung, one of his many great insights was that for the average person, we project outside the opposite of what we feel inside. And so a person who is very egotistical is actually a person who feels threatened. They have to impose them, themselves on the world in order to keep the world from imposing itself on them. And the person who has the submissive sort of humility that, oh, I'm no good, I'm a bad person, I'm, uh, I'm worthless, and so forth, uh, that person is one who's also uh, afraid of the world, but they have learned that the best way of avoiding others' aggression is to uh, crawl under the rug <laughs> and hide their head. <laughs> so both are two, two, different, uh, two different forms of egotism, but real humility means being uh, transparent and I am what I am and that's okay. Uh, I know what I know and I don't know what I do and I know what I don't know. Uh, I, I'm aware that I don't know everything and that's okay. Both are okay. Uh, if I know something, I can say it. If I don't know something, I can say that too, that I don't know that. With uh, inner development, I could say spiritual development, uh, but uh, inner development, one begins to feel comfortable Wherever one is, one begins to feel, well, as one begins to feel a sense of expansion and a feel of uh, a connection uh, with the world, one begins to feel that the need to impose my personality uh, uh, is, no longer, is no longer there. I don't need to sell myself. I don't need to advertise myself. I'm not even concerned about the, you know, the, uh, the, the personality and so forth. It doesn't mean that I don't take care of myself. It doesn't mean that I don't have a sense of inner dignity. Uh, yes, a, a spiritual person does have that, but it's not, uh, it's not the type of dignity which is show for the world. It's a, a dignity which comes from being uh, content and uh, being unafraid of, of, of the world around. So uh, humility is something that needs to be learned, but it first has to be understood that it really means being transparent. I don't have anything to hide. I don't have anything uh, to impose. I am just who I am. And again, that sense of being connected uh, to a larger reality, a, a, a oneness, an infinite reality, that brings that sense of transparency and that sense of uh, I'm not limited to this, and uh, this person that uh, I've always thought that I am, uh, I'm larger than that. And so I don't, I don't feel the necessity of always imposing this person, Swami Atmarupananda, on others. There is also a very practical result of an attitude toward the world, characterized by humility. One stops harming others and destroying nature in order to achieve benefits for oneself, simply because this is contrary to the inner feeling of a humble person. So humility is a virtue. Let's talk about virtues, about values. Is there such a thing as absolute values? The great human virtues, where do they come from? 
what, what, is, what is their source? They are natural expressions of the illumined mind. For us, they are practices, they are aspirations. Uh, but for a person of illumination, it's the natural expression of that state. Uh, truthfulness, uh, I have no need to lie uh, for, uh, for a person of illumination because they live in the truth. They see and think only truth, and uh, there's nothing, nothing to hide. Honesty, of course, associated virtue. Uh, compassion, uh, empathy, all of those uh, things uh, and others, they're the natural expression of illumination. For us, they're aspirations, they're practices, uh, but for the illumined mind, they're, they're, they're an expression of what they are. So all, uh, all of the great virtues that we commonly recognize, those are rooted in uh, spiritual reality. When we understand that, we see much clearer uh, the, the nature and the value of human virtues. Things like self-sacrifice. When you see extraordinary examples, like I think of one, uh, again, because it's where I was living, uh, in America, when there was a, a plane crash in the, the, I think it was in the Potomac, or maybe, I forget whether it's in New York or Washington, D.C., it doesn't matter, plane crash in, uh, in a, a river uh, outside of either Washington, D.C. or New York City, wintertime, the water was uh, frigid, the plane landed on the water, and the people were able to get out, but they were drowning in the cold water. And so as they brought helicopter and dropping ropes to pull people up, with uh, then this one man, he kept hand, when the rope would come, uh, he would hand it to someone else, and then hand it to someone else, and hand it to someone else. Finally, because of the cold of the water, uh, he succumbed and he he drowned himself. But after saving a number of other people, and so seeing that, everyone recognizes that uh, what a wonderful man! You had his own self-sacrifice. He saved many others, but he died. But why? <laughs> It's good for other people, but it was terrible for him because he died. <laughs> what was the benefit for him? That's our natural thought. Because uh, be first, again, uh, yeah, I'm sure he helped a lot of other people, but what good did it do him? He ended up dead. Uh, he should have saved himself. Oh, no. Well, then we recognize that uh, when I begin to feel connected to something larger, uh, then I don't feel that this is more important than, uh, than the, uh, the other person. And so uh, that uh, ability to do an act of extreme self-sacrifice, uh, uh, that uh, comes much more naturally and it's quite, quite understandable because I see that I'm not losing anything, that uh, my, my life is their life and their life is my life. It's uh, something that only becomes understandable when we, when we understand some of these deeper truths. Now, if a person like this man, whether he had understood it intellectually, probably not. There was no evidence of that. He was just an extremely good-hearted man. But uh, it's believed in uh, all religions, including Vedanta, that a person who can do that in a truly unselfish way, their self-sacrifice is rewarded with the perception of that uh, higher connection. Uh, and if they don't, if they're not feeling that, they can't even do it. Their first instinct is, let me grab the rope and get out of here. Uh, the, the rope will come back for others, but I've got to get out of here. But uh, they've begun somehow through feeling, through thinking, but most probably through feeling, that my life is in them also, and so let me give them the rope. They're not thinking that everybody's watching, and so I want people to think I'm a hero. <laughs> that can't come. It comes because there's, from the feeling level or the perceptual level or the intellectual, not intellectual level, it has to come from a feeling or a perceptual level, one begins to see that uh, by saving them, I'm saving myself. Not this body, but my real self. <laughs> what this example shows is that the virtues and values are inherent in man. So the goal would be to get deep enough into one's own nature, own being. Yes, exactly, exactly. And that's, uh, that's important, that it wasn't the instinct of the body, because the instinct of the body is to save myself, uh, to, to get out as quick as I can, even pushing other people out of the way. That's the physical instinct. But a deeper, a deeper instinct uh, rooted in our uh, deeper nature uh, than just the physical instincts, 
Uh, yes, that uh, that uh, that is what is is expressing itself. According to the Vedantic thought, we haven't completely forgotten our real nature. That is there. That's what that's what drives us in life. That's the driving motivation in life. Uh, uh, Freud thought the driving motivation in life was sex. Marx thought the driving uh, motivation in life was uh, economy. For the ordinary person, uh, there's there's truth to, to both uh, points of view. They were actually seeing something and uh, uh, understanding something. But there's a deeper motivation, and that which is behind both of those, and that is uh, the attempt to get back to our true nature. And so, yes, the, those virtues of the enlightened mind, the, they haven't been completely forgotten. They're still in seed form within us, and they are what motivate us to do things which seem to be against our um, egocentric self-interest, acts of uh, acts of kindness, acts of uh, compassion, acts of self-sacrifice. Uh, it's because and the more a person has begun to access that, what's traditionally called purification of the heart or whatever, uh, then the, the more that, that becomes uh, present. And that's why we see, even among people who have no apparent religious inclination, spiritual inclination, we find very, very good people. People often ask, well, some of the atheists I know are much better than many of the religious people I know. (laughs) Oh, yes, that's why we don't need to be afraid of atheism or whatever. Uh, It's uh, these truths are inherent in the human heart and they come out uh, in their own way. The, the, the deeper virtues are there in seed form within everyone because the enlightened mind is there within everyone. There is an important point to this. The virtues, the goodness, exist in us all in the seed form. But the world we live in, the culture we are born into, can either help us or make it difficult for us to let these seeds germinate, the sprouts grow. It seems to me that we need a different environment for our growth, don't we? Foundational in Eastern thought, not just Vedantic thought, but in Eastern, all of uh, Eastern thought, is the wave-like nature of uh, everything in the universe, that everything happens, uh, there's a rise and there's a fall, there's a rise and there's a fall. Uh, and so we see that in uh, through history, that there are golden periods and then there are dark periods. Uh, there, then there's another golden period and another dark period. There are periods when there's a rise in spirituality, when there's a rise in natural goodness of uh, people. And then there are periods uh, which, again, there's a rise in violence and negative qualities of human society. Of course, that means that, that, uh, that there are times which are very propitious, the times which are conducive to the growth of these ideas. My own belief, which time may prove it right or wrong, my own belief is that we are entering a time uh, when these values will begin to grow. Uh, one of the reasons for that is, not the only, but one reason for that belief is that uh, times have become so dark now and there's so many things uh, that uh, so many elements of human civilization which seem on the brink of collapse. Just as our human body has its own uh, immune system that fights disease, uh, all of us go through periods of sickness and then we go through periods where we're of greater health because the body has an immune system to preserve itself. There's a will to live uh, within the body itself. Uh, within the system itself. And so in society, uh, there seems to be a a social will to live, a will to survive also, which uh, after a period of great decline, uh, then inevitably uh, there's either final destruction, (laughs) which we haven't seen yet, uh, or a period of a rise in the, the conditions of society. And I can't, maybe it's just uh, my hopeful thinking, but I don't think it is. I can't help but think as I look around society, uh, seeing little seeds uh, sprouting everywhere in society of uh, hopeful signs of a new of a new way. Uh, people, whether it's through environmentalism, 
which for many young younger people now is the uh, movement that uh, inspires them as uh, when I was a, a youngster, uh, it was uh, spirituality and uh, during the hippie movement, the idea of a new uh, spiritual movement in society, which inspired me and many others. Uh, nowadays, environmentalism is something which is inspiring many young people. So whatever the movement is, where well, you see uh, around the world that there are many people looking for a new way forward. And that, uh, to me, is a very hopeful, hopeful sign. That, uh, yes, uh, just looking at the present moment, things are uh, pretty dark. But uh, the signs of growing light are there also. <laughs> and so I, I think it's a time when we will begin to see uh, changes, slowly at first, but they will grow until they're more visible to everyone. And I should say one of the other reasons I believe that is that uh, one of my great inspirations, uh, Swami Vivekananda, he believed that. He believed that there was a great spiritual awakening that was uh, uh, that was coming to the world. That it would take uh, it would take a couple of centuries or something for it to become visible uh, to the common people, but that it was coming. And uh, so, anyway, that's my hope. <laughs> Who is your personal role model and what have you learned from him or her? Well, my role models are three main ones. Sri Ramakrishna, Swami Vivekananda, whom I just mentioned, and the Holy Mother. And all three of them were, of course, closely associated. They're at the foundation of our uh, movement. Through Ramakrishna, uh, I have learned uh, that Uh, spirituality is the meaning of life, that that's the essence of life, That's uh, that, that is at the heart of life. From his standpoint, uh, as well as now mine, uh, it's at the heart of everyone, not just as spiritual people are doing the right thing and everybody else is doing the wrong thing. No, spirituality is at the heart of everyone. And it's what is motivating everyone, even the bad actions of bad actors. It's uh, their misunderstanding of uh, how they're going to get what they want <laughs> that makes them do what they're doing. So the main thing that I got from Sri Ramakrishna is that, that, that spirituality is the essence of life. Uh, from uh, Swami Vivekananda, the practicalization of that uh, vision at the individual level, how to put it into practice for the individual, but also at the social level. He was uh, perhaps the first great global spiritual teacher uh, who took an intense interest in every aspect of humanity, not just uh, their spiritual life. Not He wasn't a teacher who said, uh, forget about the world and just uh, realize the spiritual truth and everything will be fine, but forget about the world. No, he was interested in human history, deeply interested in history. He was deeply interested in science. He was de deeply interested in social institutions, uh, deeply interested in uh, every aspect of human life, the arts. And so that bringing that vision of Sri Ramakrishna uh, into a detailed vision of the world itself, uh, which sees uh, society itself as an organism, and different cultures as uh, living uh, organisms. That uh, he said that uh, at the heart of every country is an ideal. And as long as that ideal remains strong, the country will live. Uh, and uh, he was against any form of colonialism, whether it's the classic colonialism of one country conquering others and taking, char taking charge of them governmentally, or modern economic colonialism of taking charge of the economy of other countries and uh, using them for one's own economic benefit without concern for the other people themselves. Because he saw that uh, each, uh, each country embodies an idea. And he said that even if, and he didn't believe it was possible, but he said even if a particular country and its culture could be proven to be totally evil, that even then through folly also wisdom comes to some. And uh, so uh, even, uh, even then uh, they will find their way to, uh, to wisdom. He was against imposing things on individual people and also imposing things on, on uh, societies. 
my idea that I know best what is best uh, for people in other countries, so I go to another country and try to turn them into a reflection of my own, uh, that's done a tremendous amount of harm. So, again, coming back to the main point, Swami Vivekananda took this vision of Sri Ramakrishna that everything is an expression of the inner spirit and uh, developed it in detail uh, and practicalized that idea for individuals and for, for society. And uh, then the, the Holy Mother, means Sri Sarada Devi, uh, the wife and spiritual partner of Sri Ramakrishna, uh, who became, after he died for the next uh, 34 years that, that she lived, after he passed away, she was the spiritual light of the movement. Even Swami Vivekananda, the great leader of the movement, he would defer to her in everything. He would, uh, uh, if she had a difference of opinion, he would immediately drop his own and, uh, and follow hers. So she was really the spiritual leader after Sri Ramakrishna passed away and his equal as Sri Ramakrishna himself said. In fact, he used to put her above himself when speaking of her to other people. And uh, so uh, Sarada Devi, or the, what, whom we call the Holy Mother, uh, she was the embodiment of the ideal of the motherhood of God, that is the all-accepting mother heart of God, uh, who loves us uh, just because we are, not because of the way we act, not because of what we do, not because of uh, how good we are or anything like that, but uh, who loves us because we are uh, each uh, embodiments of that infinite reality, whether we knew it or not, whether we act according to it or not. As uh, she used to say that if a child uh, falls in the mud, then the mother takes the child and uh, washes it off. So that was her attitude towards, uh, towards everyone. No one was unacceptable. No one was beyond or outside of her love. And so that Enlightened mind, uh, enlightened state of consciousness, because it's actually beyond mind, it expresses itself through mind, but it's beyond mind, that enlightened consciousness was embodied in her as, uh, you could say, the heart of the universe, the loving heart of the universe, the all-loving and all-accepting heart of the universe. All of us are looking in life for non-judgmental love. We may not know it, uh, but that's, uh, that's what all of us uh, want. Many people become bitter with life because they never even got close to it. <laughs> it, it, it they, they lose all faith in humanity and in life and in themselves because they never experienced uh, such a thing. But she embodied that, the idea that, uh, or the reality, that at the heart of the universe, there is an all-loving heart. For most of us, the universe seems so random and uncaring and cold. Uh, we're just lost in this uh, vast uh, universe. But she embodied the reality that, no, at the heart of the universe, there is the all-loving heart of a mother. And she, uh, she, she embodied that, she lived that, uh, demonstrated it. And we can begin to find that, uh, again, just through these, uh, these ideas, practicing the ideas, approaching the ideas. We begin to find that the universe is not the cold, impersonal place that I thought that it was. Once I begin to feel this unity which is already present, and as I said in the earlier session, it's a, actually a part of our th thinking and perceiving, but we're not used to noti noticing it. It's something which has fallen to the background of our consciousness, uh, but it's what makes consciousness itself possible. Once I begin to become conscious of that, then I begin to feel that, yes, at the heart of the universe, there is love. It's a strange thing that the universe, which seems so uncaring, a time comes when I begin to feel that everything in the universe is motivated by love. And that that sense of unity that I begin to feel with the universe, that that unity is love itself. That that's what love is. Love, love as aspiration is the seeking of unity. And love as fulfillment is the, is the experience of unity. 
And so I begin to feel that the reason why I didn't feel this before is that I myself was putting my hands over my eyes and refusing to see it. <laughs> All I had to do was to remove uh, my hands and look and see what is actually before me. And then I see, I see that the universe itself, uh, even the bad things that happened to me, the painful things that happened to me, uh, that behind that also there is the loving heart of the universe behind that. That I judge some things as good for me and some things as bad for me because I don't see the whole picture. But as I begin to feel connected with the unity, I begin to see that everything that happens uh, happens out of a spirit of love. It's a very strange uh, thing, but a very real thing. As I was listening to you, it occurred to me that Sri Ramakrishna is, so to speak, the goal. Swami Vivekananda embodies the way, how to practically get to the goal, and the mother's loving heart who accompanies us on the way is Sri Sharada Devi. That's exactly right. Oh, that's exactly right. Yeah, I say the some the same thing sometimes, uh, and I've never heard. I've only heard one other person ever say that uh, many years ago from a senior swami. Uh, so that's very perceptive of you. That, uh, that yes, Sri Ramakrishna is uh, the the goal, and Swami Vivekananda is the way, and the Holy Mother is the supporting love that holds up the whole process between the the path and the goal, <laughs> or the ideal and the and the way. Uh, so yes, yes, yes. You've talked a lot about spirituality. What is spirituality in concrete terms? From the uh, time that we are born, we're trying to figure out who I am and what the world is. Uh, the baby at first uh, apparently just sees a mass of sensations and doesn't quite know what everything is. Uh, it begins to find out where the limitations of its body are. It begins to uh, see forms like its uh, mother and uh, father and so forth and begins to recognize forms and patterns and so forth. But all through life, we continue seeking to find out who we are and what the world we find ourselves in is. And so spirituality really is just a, uh, a conscious search for that. And that is the search of Vedanta, just to find out who I am, what the world is. So it's just f doing what we are doing from the time we are babies, but uh, beginning to do it consciously, instead of uh, sort of just uh, uh, unconsciously uh, learning as we go. That is focusing on who I am and on what the world in its, uh, in its depth is. And so let me focus on one side of that, because it's the side we don't usually think about, and that is about who I am. If I begin to examine, uh, examine myself, I have an idea. I'm a Swami Atmarupananda. I was born in such and such a place at such and such a time. Uh, my parents were so-and-so, and, -so, and uh, I could go on uh, writing a whole biography about myself. Not very interesting, but uh, just uh, uh, filled with data. Uh, but that's not really who I am. Those are circumstances through which I have been. That's my personal history, but it's not who I am. So when I begin to search for who I really am, I find that uh, the first thought is that I'm this body, this physical body. But I see the body. I experience the body. It's an object of my perception. So I can't be the body because... Whatever I am, I'm the one who sees the body, who experiences the body as an object. Just as I see the world around me, so I see the body as an object. Uh, then I come to my mind. I think, well, I'm a mind. But I'm the one who experiences the mind. I see the mind. I see my thoughts. I see my emotions. Uh, I see my memories. All of, the, all of that uh, is object uh, I'm the seer, the one who sees the body. I'm the one who sees the mind and its contents and so forth. Uh, and so I eventually come to understand through this analysis that I'm the light uh, which illuminates all of my experience. I'm not 
that which I experience. I'm the light which illuminates the experience. Uh, I'm the experiencer, and everything else is the experienced, whether at the physical level or at the mental level, at the emotional level, at all levels. That's all object to me who am the light of experience. When I go deeper with, the, with that thought, if I just hold on to the sense I am, uh, just that sense I am, not I am Swami Atmarupananda, or not I am a man or a woman, or not I'm a monk or a lay person, or I'm a teacher or I'm a student, just the pure sense of I am, something strange happens. I begin to see that the I am, which is not an object, it's, it's what I, I am, the I am. The sense I am, uh, it, be, it begins to become something that becomes perception, not an object of perception, but it's who I am. And I can, it's something that I can rest in, the sense of I am without any definition. When I can do that, then I begin to see that all of my thoughts, the, the perception of my body, and the perception of the world around me, that arises within the I am. That the I am is primordial. It's that which is there always. It's there when I'm asleep. It's there when I'm dreaming. It's there when I'm awake. It's there when I'm unconscious. Uh, the pure I am is always there. And when I begin to get that sense as an experience, as a fact of experience, not as a thought or a philosophy, but as a fact of experience, I begin to feel that the, that, that, that that is eternal. It's not affected by waking or sleeping. And I begin to get the distinct sense that that's not affected by life and death, by birth and death, that that is. And it's what I am. I am the I am. Everything else about me, the body, uh, the mind, my personal history, the, uh, the, uh, the facts of my personal history, all of those are things that pass within the sense of I am. And if I hold on to that uh, longer, then I begin to see that the sun rises within the I am, the moon sets within the I am, everything happens within the I am, and then I begin to perceive that uh, the I am is something which is not just primordial, but that it's vast. It's not somewhere within me, within my body, there is an I am. No, it's not an object, it's not a thing. It's what I am, and that is the light which perceives everything else, the light in which everything else happens. And then I begin to feel a strange thing, that the I am, uh, that which I am, uh, language is such that we end up speaking of it as an object, but of course I don't mean it that way. The I am is, the, uh, is universal, that everything in the universe is saying I am. The sun is saying, I am. Other people are saying, I am. Dogs, when they bark, they're saying, I am. Cows, when they moo, they're saying, I am. Bees, when they buzz, they're saying, I am. Uh, even we begin to feel that the rocks are saying, I am. When they present themselves to our consciousness, they're saying, I am. <laughs> and so we begin to feel that which God said to Moses in the Jewish Bible, accepted by Christians also as the Old Testament, uh, God says to Moses, I am that I am, in English is the St. James translation. There are a variety of ways of translating it and a variety of ways of interpreting it. But the Vedantic way of interpreting it, which is legitimate to interpret a text which did not or, uh, originate within our own uh, tradition, uh, the Vedantic way of interpreting it is that I am the I am. I am that I am. I am the I am. Uh, and I am that I am, you can't say anything more about the I am because uh, it's beyond words. It's just I am. And that there is only one I am. And so that is one path of coming to the point where uh, I see through the I am, which is what I am, through the I am, I'm connected to everything. That as Schrodinger, Erwin uh, uh, Schrodinger said, the great physicist uh, said, uh, consciousness is always experienced in the singular. And the I am also is singular. By saying consciousness is always experienced in the singular, he didn't mean each, I, each consciousness is isolated from other consciousnesses. He meant that there is only one consciousness. 
Uh, and there are a variety of points of view within that one consciousness. And so in the I am, uh, there is only one I am. Each one of us is a point of view within the I am, but the I am is cosmic. And I am the I am. And the more I rest in the sense of I am, the more I feel my connection with everything. Uh, I feel uh, co connected to the whole universe. And so where I started with saying that I'm the light of experience, not the objects of experience. But then when I go deeper, I begin to see that those objects of experience, those are me too, because those are floating within the I am. Those are objectifications of the I am. Uh, and so I come to a higher unity. I start by a separation that I'm the light which illuminates the objects of experience, like the body, the mind, my thoughts, my emotions, the world around me. But then I begin to see that those all float within the I am, which is consciousness itself. If I can get back to, the, to that, then that becomes a silent reality. It doesn't even say I am anymore. Uh, just become silent, but it is the it is the substratum of the I am, which within manifestation expresses itself as I am. So by finding out who I am, I find out my connection to everything else, and not just connection, but my unity to everything else. Conversely, if I focus on the outer world with a mind honed by meditation, I begin to see that behind everything is this uh, luminous being and uh, that uh, this uh, conscious being. And through that process also, I can come to the point where I see the unity of I and that, or I and thou, or I and that. So whether I approach it through knowing who I am or I approach it through uh, inquiry into the nature of the universe. I eventually come to that uh, same uh, non-dual uh, reality, which underlies uh, underlies both. And so why should one do that? Because from birth, we're, uh, we're trying to figure out who I am and what the world is. Uh, and we won't come to the end of that until we see it through to its depths. It's that which will bring us the greatest joy in life, which will take us beyond fear, take us beyond misery. Uh, and it transforms the world itself. We see the world itself in a new light. We see the world as, uh, as our own self. The whole world is my own self. And when I, can, when I begin to see that, then I begin to see that all of the contradictions in life and all of the... Uh, the pains and sufferings in life, uh, that uh, all of that is contained within a, a glorious unity which itself is beyond pain and beyond suffering. Uh, and that that is the birthright of everyone. And uh, so if we even take a few steps in that direction uh, in this life, we'll find that the, the quality of our life improves, the quality of our experience improves. Uh, life becomes more understandable. And so that gives us the faith that, well, if I've taken a few steps in that direction, that has given me this, which is a great benefit. Let me take a few more steps. That is what uh, drives a person forward on the spiritual uh, path. The, the experience that every step I take is a step into light. So let me take some more steps. Let me take some more steps. Uh, as Rumi, the great Sufi poet, uh, said uh, in one of his beautiful poems, which I can unfortunately only paraphrase, uh, he said, what have I ever lost by dying? I was mineral, I died, and I became plant. I was plant, and I died, and I became animal. I was animal, I died, and I became human. I am human and I die and I am born into the celestial spheres. And there I am born into the infinite, uh, which um, uh, no words can express. And then he gives, the, he gives the example of the drop falling into the ocean. The drop is afraid to fall into the ocean, afraid that it will lose itself. But when it falls into the ocean, it finds that it has become the ocean. It is all water. And it, is, uh, it has become uh, water itself. Uh, so what have I ever lost by dying? 
So in the spiritual process, one finds that it's a process, uh, in one sense, it, from the outside, it looks like a dying to oneself. And in spiritual literature, they speak of that. But from a higher perspective, it's being born into oneself, uh, that it's uh, the great paradox of spiritual life. That, that death to oneself is actually the beginning of one's birth into one's real self, uh, where one loses nothing but gains everything, because within oneself, everything is contained within oneself, and all beings are contained within oneself. And so that is the uh, glory of uh, this uh, search for, uh, for truth. It, lead, it leads to that. And I'll end with the conviction, uh, which is a Vedantic conviction, uh, but it has become my own conviction from what little I have gained in spiritual life, is that all of us are headed in that direction, uh, that no one is left behind, because it's who we are. And as we go on this uh, path, we find it is who I always was. I just didn't know it. And so uh, uh, it's the birthright of everyone, and it will be the fulfillment of everyone uh, in time. On the way to understanding, to love, to light, one advances more quickly if one gets off the train of more than hectic life and takes the path of practical spirituality, which at first glance may seem unspectacular. The path itself is a reward. I spoke with Swami Atmarupananda, a monk of the Ramakrishna order, about how change can take place in our personal lives, but also in society. My name is Andreas Stanowski and I'm the publisher at Continental Verlag in Germany. Have a look at our books. Maybe you will find something that interests or delights you. Let's stay in touch.